Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan Summer in Tel Aviv. We are in the midst of dueling news cycles here in Israel. There are terror attacks and violent settler retaliation in the West Bank. There are renewed efforts to push through the judicial revolution by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government, even in the face of six months of protests against them. And there is dramatic testimony by producer Arnon Milchin in Netanyahu's corruption trial. That testimony is taking place in Brighton, England. Then, over the weekend, along with the rest of the world, we were unexpectedly riveted by what seemed for a few hours like a possible coup in Moscow when a mercenary militia that has been a key player in Russian aggression against Ukraine took on President Vladimir Putin. Haaret senior columnist Anshel Pfeffer has covered the Russia-Ukraine conflict extensively. He's written a book on Netanyahu. He's served in the past as a military correspondent. So who better to come on our podcast this week and make some order of these multiple intertwining stories? Hi, Anshel. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alison. Thanks for having me. So the big challenge to Russian President Vladimir Putin fizzled out after the mercenary commander Yevgeny Prigozhin ordered his troops to march on Moscow, and then he turned around. He abruptly reached a deal with the Kremlin to go into exile. It was over quickly, but it seemed to expose huge vulnerabilities in Russian forces and Putin's strength. So given the weakened state, is it more obvious than ever that the Israeli policy to stay in Putin's good graces at the expense of supporting Ukraine, at the expense of goodwill on the part of uh, the Biden White House, has been a huge strategic mistake? I think that was uh, clear already uh, 16 months ago when it became clear that the Russian army doesn't have the capabilities to uh, take over uh, uh, Ukraine and to reach Kiev, as they boasted at the beginning, in three days, and that it would all be over very quickly. We very quickly saw already 16 months ago that the Ukrainian army is uh, prepared. It may may not have the same level of forces that the Russians have, but they're more motivated, they're better organized. This war was not going to end very quickly in the way that Russia had expected and many many observers also, those who weren't pro-Russian were, were thinking would happen. Uh, I think that for all this time since, Israel has, uh, both on a moral level, on a strategic level, has been making a mistake by staying on the sidelines and keeping its, its relationship intact with the Russians. And I think it'll have uh, an impact in the future. I, I, we didn't need the the episode of the weekend with uh, with everything that, that was happening between Rostov and Moscow and the, the dealings between Prigozhin and Putin to, to tell us that. But it's just further proof that anybody who puts too much uh, into their relationship with Moscow is not onto a good thing. So the Ukrainian embassy in Tel Aviv picks Sunday, when this is barely over, to blast Jerusalem, to blast a a statement uh, in which saying that uh, the Israeli government has shown a blatant disregard for moral boundaries, remaining silent in the face of anti-Semitism from the Russians, professing a clear pro-Russian position and expressing regret that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government has, quote, opted for a path of close cooperation with the Russian Federation. 
Is the timing of this sort of onslaught, uh, which I think the Ukrainian ambassador is being uh, called to the uh, foreign ministry sort of to be reprimanded, I guess, or to be discussed with this strong statement. But the fact that this is coming on the heels of the almost rebellion, almost coup, whatever you want to call it, was it a coincidence? Or do you think maybe the Ukrainians sense an opportunity to try to turn uh, Netanyahu around, to try to turn the Israelis around? I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that Kornikov, the ambassador, has been saying similar things throughout the war and every every opportunity uh, you know, we've had we've interviewed him a number of times uh, in Haaretz and I've met him and, and many of our correspondents have met him and heard similar similar things from him. It, it's not a new accusation coming from him. I'm not 100 percent sure that this is this is fully coordinated with his bosses back in Kiev. Kornikov has his own. Uh, mission here in Israel to try and influence, to tr- try and influence public opinion, to try, to try and pressure the government to be more forthcoming on supplying arms to Ukraine. And whenever he has the opportunity, and right now, he he obviously saw that this is a big issue in the news with the, everything that that was happening in Moscow over, over Saturday. So he he took the opportunity to once again say these things. Like I said earlier, I don't think this is a conclusion that we've suddenly reached now that, that that Israel has been too neutral too 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 on the sidelines in in this war this that's been the case for 16 months and Kornikov just uh, popped up again because it's in the news oh also that Vladimir Putin said that Zelensky is a disgrace to the Jewish people and Israel said nothing well that's not not the first time that Israel's been quiet when we've heard uh, stuff like that coming uh, coming out of uh, of the Kremlin and the whole premise, the whole false premise of of what Putin still calls the special military operation of denazification of, of Ukraine, as if the Nazis are in control in Kiev and and actually uh, President Zelensky, who is of course Jewish, is is basically a neo-Nazi. This entire way of framing their their invasion of of Ukraine is is an insult to to Jewish history to the memory of the Holocaust and Israel's largely remain remain silent about this so in the prime minister's office and in the top echelons of the security infrastructure do they look at what happened over the weekend and think about maybe recalculating shifting the policy might we now start supplying weapons or some sort of infrastructure to ukraine more than we have might we stop trading with the russians might we think consider sanctions that the u.s and the rest of the uh, western world has been lobbying us to do do you see any shift because of what happened i i'm sorry to say but i don't see any shift and from all the conversations I've had with officials and politicians at various levels, and, and let's be honest, this is not just under the Netanyahu government. The invasion uh, of Ukraine began when Naftali Bennett was prime minister. This was the policy of Bennett. This was the policy in the short period in which Yair Lapid was prime minister. I don't see it changing now. And if you talk to, to, to people, very senior people in in Jerusalem, they'll say, yes, we're, we're, this is not such a comfortable policy, we understand, but actually... When we talk with our counterparts in Europe, in, in Washington, they, they understand our position because they know that we have this Russian contingent uh, across our border in Syria, and they know we have, we have special concerns for the big Jewish community, which could be vulnerable in Russia, and the Jews are in Ukraine as well. So we think that we can get away with this policy, and actually everybody will understand it. Well, time will tell. 
Even though for Netanyahu, it would be an easy give, it would be an easy win at a time where he's, you know, at loggerheads with Washington over Iran, over settlements and the settler violence, you know, softening on Ukraine wouldn't be such a big sacrifice. No, I, I, I certainly agree you would think so. You would think that this is something that Netanyahu could give, and maybe he will. But at the same time, it's hard to underrate the place that fear and sort of a sort of respect for Russia has in Israeli policy making and always has had. There is, uh, I think it's overrated. I, th- I, I don't think there is a real reason for this, but there remains a very strong fear of Russia and what Russia can do uh, in Israeli, both in Israeli military circles and in political circles. Not everybody, I have heard some senior officers being very critical of this policy, but I think the dominant f- feeling is that we should not get involved in this. This is not our war. And Russia can do a lot to harm us. And therefore, we have other ways to, to help the Ukrainians. And and the world will understand why Israel had to stay, stay on the sidelines. Like I said, I think this, I think this is a very bad strategy, but it, it's pretty entrenched. Maybe Netanyahu, like you said, will, take, will use this opportunity to curry some favor in Washington. I've yet to see any sign of that happening. When you speak to security officials, do they still, as they did at the beginning of the war, emphasize the fact that uh, we need to keep an eye on our northern border and that was always their primary reason for needing to uh, preserve this relationship with Russia? Yeah, that that is the main issue. That, that, that They totally say we have Russia as a neighbor, basically. Um, and like, like I said, it's not necessarily everybody in the security establishment. There are people who think that this is not a good idea and Israel could certainly do a lot more in support of Ukraine and Russia doesn't really have that that much it can do to harm Israel. But also we don't know a lot of things about the personal relationship between Putin and Netanyahu, which is going back many years. Maybe there, maybe there are other reasons that, that I really can't uh, uh, can't say because I, because I don't know, I don't, want to, I don't want to speculate that Netanyahu is is wary of Putin. And once again, it's not just Netanyahu, it was Bennett as well. So this is, and so, you know, I've heard this in, in conversations with people who I would have expected to, to have been more pro-Ukraine, certainly more, uh, uh, people who have a more moral outlook within the security establishment in Israel, who are very, very wary about this. And maybe they know things about, about what Russia has and can do to Israel that we don't know, but that that's where it stands. The Russians don't seem to love us too much either. The Russian state media is attacking Israel for being too pro-Ukrainian, you know, despite all the things we just discussed. And our colleague Alon Pincus wrote, quote, it takes talent, unique diplomatic flair, savviness and strategic clairvoyance to successfully accomplish what Israel did over the past eight months, somehow alienate both Ukraine and Russia and along the way, disappoint and frustrate the United States. Do you agree with his assessment? Alon, as usual, is is a hundred percent accurate, and I, I totally agree with him. But the thing is, is that uh, if you look at long before the war, if you look at the way the tone and the content of many of the of the Kremlin's propaganda channels, Russia Today, and various other networks, they've always been very anti-Israel. They've all because they cater to this conspiracy theory loving uh, uh, viewership or, or, or who always see Israel and the Jews as a source of, uh, of the world's woes. And it's always interesting to see this dissonance between the way Putin himself 
uh, has spoken and his engagement with Israeli leaders, which has always been almost always been very positive, while the the propaganda channels that his regime has funded have been very anti-Israel and, and quite anti-Semitic in many ways. And I think that that is uh, simply because when Putin talks, he's talking to a certain audience as a as a statesman. And when Russia Today and various other Kremlin channels or Kremlin-funded channels uh, broadcast, they're broadcasting to a certain audience who see Israel and see Jews in the way that they do. Okay, Ansha, let's hop a plane. Let's leave Russia and land our plane in Brighton, England. Maybe Netanyahu was glad uh, about the whole Russia mess to have something to distract the Israelis uh, the day before key testimony in his corruption trial. Of all places, Anshel, your two countries collide. In Brighton, England, Hollywood producer Anon Milchin started his testimony in the corruption trial against uh, Netanyahu. Remind us, remind the listeners first of what Milchin is testifying about and what you thought of the first day of testimony. So Anon Milchin is the key witness in case 1000, one of the three corruption cases Netanyahu is currently accused of. And there's no dispute. Netanyahu uh, is not disputing the fact that the basic facts here that Anon Milchin was somebody who for over a period of years uh, sent uh, gifts. Netanyahu says there are gifts, gifts of a close friendship. But the, the prosecution says these are illegal gifts um, of uh, crates of French champagne and boxes of Cuban cigars and the occasional piece of jewelry, and there were coats and suits and all kinds of stuff there. It wasn't just Milton. Milton was the main guy, but there was also uh, Packer, the Australian billionaire who was involved uh, at some point in uh, in the supply of, uh, of goodies to the Netanyahu residents. And this is the base of Case 1000. And Milton, who is born in Israel, and Israel was you know, is his homeland, and he's uh, even though he spent many years in Hollywood, and he also has that home in Sussex in southern England, which is why he's now testifying in Brighton. He hasn't been back in Israel for five or six years now. He is, for whatever reasons, scared to come back to Israel. He didn't even come back for his mother's funeral. Um, his home, not far from Netanyahu's uh, weekend house in Caesarea, has been the focus of some of, some of the testimony, but Milton hasn't been there for a while. And because he is so important to the prosecution, the uh, this, the circus, which has been ongoing for three years now in the Jerusalem District Court, had to fly over to to Brighton. For a while, there was speculation that the that the hearing would be held in the Israeli embassy in London, and there was talk of it being somewhere else in London. And suddenly, they announced, actually, we're going to do it in Brighton. It didn't deter a small group of of Israelis living there to protest outside the court, especially because Sarah Netanyahu was also there on location together with uh, with her husband's defense team. And uh, what we've heard really so far, and as we're talking, we're still waiting for the second day of Milchin's testimony to begin, isn't really new. We've, we've already heard, it's already been leaked in various ways, and we've heard the other witnesses, uh, Milchin's personal assistant and his driver, his accountant, uh, go through this long list of um, goodies which are valued at hundreds of thousands of shekels that Milchin gave to the Netanyahu. What I think we're seeing uh, in the Milchin test- testimony so far is that this level of relationship where uh, the Netanyahu family can continue saying, and they have said, and their lawyers have said, and they'll say it again, if, they, if, 
if the court reaches the stage where Netanyahu and, and Mr. and Mrs. Netanyahu take the stands, that this is just an intimate friendship and exchange of gifts is a normal thing, and they were convinced that this was 100% legal. What you're seeing here is a, is a billionaire who, for him, giving uh, politicians gifts is a normal thing. He doesn't see it as friendship, obviously. He, he, he's not, in no way is he saying that he was really, he was a real friend to, to, to Bibi and Sarah and Netanyahu. But at the same time, there is this kind of ambiguity around what was expected in this relationship. And Milcher said, I was the one who first gave these gifts uh, as a matter of course, it is the kind of thing I, I showered on them and I know that they like it. But then he goes on to say about how it became something that they expected of him, even to the extent that at one point where when he and his personal assistant kind of as a joke sent Sarah Netanyahu a different type of champagne, some, some lesser brand, lesser, not, so, not such a premier label that immediately Sarah noticed that and told them off on the next time they, they sent the, the previous up, uh, you know, upper scale type of champagne. So there was obviously a level here of expectation, of demand. And the question will still, uh, will still be, will the judges ultimately see this as something illegal? I know. I hate it when my friends send me lesser brands of champagne. It really irritates me, so I can understand. Well, you know, maybe you want the kind of friend that, that Sarah and Bibi were to, to Milton, because they also sent him gifts. You know what gift they sent him? What'd they send him? A key ring. Oh, there you go. <laughs> What's with Sarah Netanyahu just happening to be in town, looking at Milton while he's testifying? How did that happen? All the sides agreed to it? It seems like such a strange thing. Well, the, the defense said that, that since he would be talking about things relating directly to her, she has a right to be there and confront him and sit, sit him, keep maintain eye contact with him while he's giving his testimony. Uh, the defense, sorry, the prosecution agreed to that, and she's the only person there. Our colleague, uh, Yael Fritzson, who's covering the trial, and her uh, other legal correspondent colleagues have not been allowed inside, and they have to watch it on the screens like everybody else. When you get a look at Milchin, you understand why it's in Brighton. He looks like he's in terrible health. And that, you know, maybe why the um, why the prosecutors really needed to accommodate him because they, you know, weren't sure how long they would get a strong testimony. People were focused not so much on what he would say in terms of factual, but on his tone, because in different um, testimonies to the police, he's been more hostile to the Netanyahu's and less hostile. So, again, this is based on the first day of testimony with Sarah Netanyahu sitting there looking at him the whole time, does it seem or could you tell in his responses if he's leaning towards a more trying to help them or uh, or make the strongest case against them? It doesn't look as if he's intimidated by Sarah, at least from what we've seen in the first day. But at the end of the day, when someone is sitting in the courtroom and there are there are the prosecutors and the, and the defense and the judge, well, in this case, the judges are, are looking through video conference and other people, in this case, Sarah Netanyahu, it's not the same kind of dynamic where he would have been sitting with the police investigators, just just him and them. And, and it's, a, it's a totally different setting. And in every case, a witness will not necessarily be testifying in the same way in the courtroom as they did when they were sitting in a, in a closed room with police investigators. So, I, you know, we're talking here about potentially 10 days of testimony, and it could get interesting. I, th I think one of the most interesting questions about this is how he'll react 
to the questioning, to the cross-examination of the defense lawyers, and will they provoke him, will they attack him, because there's always the risk here that they could ask him a question which will really piss him off, and then he'll say stuff that he perhaps wasn't planning to say about the Netanyahu's, which will be much more damning. So I think we're in for an interesting few days. And certainly this would have been much better if journalists could have been in in that uh, hall in Brighton where, where the testimony is being, is being held. I'm sure they would have enjoyed being by the beach too. It's a lovely seaside city. So, you know, they're they're missing out and, uh, and maybe Sarah is well, managing. The te- well, the funny enough, the Israeli television channels did send their reporters there because they have to, because they do stand-ups outside, outside the venue while... Haaretz and the other newspapers didn't because what's the point of, uh, of just standing outside a building when you can see it all on the screen in the courtroom in Jerusalem? Well, there's also plenty to keep the journalists busy back home. Um, you know, coming back to uh, to Jerusalem for a moment, the uh, judicial overhaul, the package of legislation that Israelis have been protesting in the streets for six months, is once again on the table. It's being debated in the Knesset after the negotiations at the president's residence have been suspended, frozen, paused, whatever you want to call it. Is moving forward with this in the form of debating getting rid of the reasonableness standard, which we'll discuss, really what Netanyahu wants to do at this moment? Or is he somehow being held hostage by his coalition partners who are forcing him to forge ahead with this very, very controversial plan that's pretty much dominated his entire uh, term as prime minister so far? Well, that's the point. Netanyahu saw, has seen how this is dominated. This has sucked out the oxygen of of the first few months of his of his new term as prime minister, and this is not the way he wanted to spend his his time back in office. He waited for eighteen months to get to get back in. The last thing he was interested in was uh, having this damaging constitutional battle with a with a re-energized opposition and a much bigger opposition out on the street. And so he now set out. His main goals for this term in, in, in his inaugural speech in the Knesset six months ago, and he talked about a breakthrough with the Abram Accords, meaning uh, an agreement with the Saudis. He talked about, obviously, fighting Iran, which is what he always talks about. And he talked about this, these grand transport infrastructure plans, a bullet train from Kiryat Shmona to Eilat. This is the stuff he wants to be dealing with. These are the things that, to him, are legacy-defining not some changes in the co- in the constitution that, that he doesn't really care that much about. I mean, yes, he would like to weaken the Supreme Court. He would be, like to weaken all the courts because he himself is now in court. But it's not something that has that has ever really been on his radar. In the same way that for Yariv Levin, his justice minister, this is the main goal. This is his lifetime uh, goal that he wants to uh, eviscerate the, the Supreme Court and other members of the coalition, Simcha Rotman and some others, uh, have similar uh, similar dreams, and you know, they dream at night of uh, of, uh, of destroying the Supreme Court. This is not something that Netanyahu has ever been very much obsessed with. It's not the policies that it, that he cares about. And once it became clear to him after two after after a couple of months, really, that this was something that would uh, would cause him damage, him personally would cause the, the economy damage, would cause his standing damage. It's one of the reasons why he still hasn't got that much awaited for invitation to the White House as a, as a re-elected prime minister. He was very, uh, uh, he was very much prepared to abandon it at some point. I think he became eager to abandon it. And if you speak to people 
who uh, who talked to Netanyahu, they none of them uh, will deny the fact that Netanyahu just wants to kick this so-called legal reform into the long grass and have it in a in a committee with the with as many people as possible, and that committee talking for as long as his as, as his own trial for years. He doesn't want to go back to it. But like you said, he is being held hostage by his coalition. He has only one coalition, and any section of that coalition, if they abandon the coalition, he, he loses his majority. And there are enough people in that coalition, like I say, who's, who who really want, who, who see this as a chance of a lifetime to strike a blow against the Supreme Court. And they're not and they're not letting Netanyahu. Uh, delay them. So yeah, he delayed them for, for two or three months with the suspension. And now they're trying a new tactic instead of going forward on all fronts and trying to pass all parts of the of the of the judicial overhaul in one Knesset session. Now they've kind of chopped it up into pieces and they're, and, they're, and they're doing one piece after another and trying to fight these separate battles with the hope of winning at least one. So far they've lost all the battles in the last six months. But they're not giving up, and Netanyahu can, can't do anything to stop them. This piece that they're trying to pass now, the reasonableness standard, presumably Netanyahu would have something invested in it because uh, taking away the ability of the courts to determine who can appoint who to what position would mean that he would get back one of his strongest political allies in his cabinet, Arie Derry. So e- even this piece, you don't think he's enthusiastic about trying to shove through? I think Netanyahu would be very happy if the changes to the reasonableness clause would be passed, and he would certainly be happy for the Supreme Court to have less powers to intervene. I don't think this is going to be enough to get Arya Derry back to the cabinet table, because that wasn't the only reason that the Supreme Court uh, uh, justices used in their in their ruling against the Derry appointment. But in general, sure, Netanyahu would love, like any, I think any politician would like to have less uh, oversight over, over what they do, and Netanyahu is no exception. But once again, we're talking here about the price for this uh, uh, for this legislative push. And I don't think Netanyahu wants to have to pay that price of facing the protests, of the international scrutiny, of the effect it's having on the economy, and of the effect it's having having on his own ratings on the in in the surveys in the polls. Netanyahu is Netanyahu's Likud has been plummeting. Benny Gantz in poll after poll is being seen now as a better prime minister than Netanyahu. And to any anyway, that's something that in in five elections in which Gantz was was challenging Netanyahu, we didn't see. I think we saw maybe once or twice in a poll. That they were that they were uh, uh, on an even footing. Now Gantz is is overtaking him uh, by a clear margin in every poll. And Netanyahu doesn't want that to to remain the uh, the situation, and he, and, like, and and he also doesn't want this to continue being the main issue of his term. He has other things that he's much more interested in doing, and he can't do those things when this is taking away all all the all the attention. Well, what's getting a lot of the attention, both at home and internationally, is that familiar uh, situation that we call the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which in all of these other headlines often seems to get buried. We saw a deadly terror attack in the settlement of Eli. Four people were killed. And subsequent, at least five settler rampages in West Bank villages following this. Talk about the dynamic here between the Palestinians, the settlers, and the IDF, and the political echelon right now. There 
are back and forth accusations. The IDF is not just protecting, but abetting the settlers committing violence. You know, a lot of the left and not just the left, you know, mainstream uh, people are observing this, that the that the uh, IDF is somehow allowing or even facilitating the settler violence. And at the same time, you have these far right ministers whose reaction to what happened was attacking the IDF for not adequately protecting settlers being too soft on Palestinian violence. So how is that dynamic working? And how is the fact that we've got these far right ministers with their histories in the settler movement sort of at the helm of the security apparatus affecting the dynamic? Well, like you said, this is not something new. It's a familiar tale. And we've had this settler violence vigilantism. Jewish terror against Palestinians taking place for 50 years now, almost basically for as long as the settler movement has, has been has been there in the West Bank. And the accusation of how the IDF and the rest of the Israeli security services and the Israeli establishment is collaborating with this violence and somehow giving them backing, it's much more in the open now because... Yes, we have ministers in this government who openly support this kind of vigilantism. Even Sadala kind of saying, yes, don't take the law into your own hand. But we know what Orit Struck and Betzal Smotrich and Itamar Benkvir have said about in the past, and you can see it now in their body language and what they're not saying, that they're perfectly uh, okay with, uh, with the settlers going on rampage. Um, so the only difference in this government is that it's out in the open. And that's not to say that the IDF and the Shin Bet supported uh, uh, Jewish terror in the West Bank in the past, but their entire, their raison d'etre of the army and of the Shin Bet in the West Bank is to protect the settlers there. It's not to protect the Palestinians. They are there. The reason that there were so, there were so many thousands of Israeli soldiers, six entire brigades in that part of the West Bank, is there to is basically to protect the settlers. So when, once you're protecting the settlers and the settlers are doing something to attack the Palestinians, you're in you're in a sort you're in a sort of a mission dilemma of how of how to deal with it. We don't see if the Palestinians were, were attacking settlers, and they are. But if in in these specific cases, when they do when they do so, the Israeli army fires at them. Uh, you don't see the Israeli army firing at settlers when they attack Palestinians because that's not the job of the army, and it never has been. And it never will be as long as the as the occupation is there. The only difference really now is that you have a significant part of the government which is saying it, which is which is clearly in ideological uh, support of the vigilantism. And in fact, they are they are one and the same. It's not that the that the settlers have supporters in the government. The settlers and that part of the settler camp, because the settlers are not just one group. There, there are many different communities amongst the settlers. They, their people are in the government right now in very senior posts. You touched on the polls earlier in our conversation. There are new numbers came out uh, last night that were, you know, really eye opening. One of the television channels put Benny Gantz's National Unity Party at 28 seats, which is more than double the current amount of seats it has in the Knesset. Yesh Atid at 20 and Likud at 24. Channel 12, the other uh, station, put the coalition at having all told 53 seats and the opposition at 71. You wrote the book on uh, Bibi Netanyahu, Anshel, and you've seen him make all of his political maneuvers over the years. What does Netanyahu look at these poll numbers and think? Well, the first thing he looks at them and he knows that he can't afford to lose his coalition because if Israel were to go to yet another election, election number six in five years, 
uh, he would <laughs> he would be booted out of the office. So he understands that he has to find a way to uh, assuage his uh, his far right partners because without them he's he, he's out of a job. There isn't any easy solution for Netanyahu because he understands that one of the main reasons why uh, uh, voters have abandoned Likud and gone over to vote for Benny Gantz is precisely because there is a significant chunk, not not a huge but one, but enough to change the balance of power amongst Likud voters who really don't like his his relationship and his partnership with uh, with Ben Gvir and Smotrich. And by the way, you saw that already six months ago when the government was formed. There was a fascinating poll which asked uh, uh, people who had voted for this government, is, it, it, even if, is this the government you wanted to see being formed? And we saw already then that even though 50% of Israelis voted for the parties of this coalition, uh, a part of those 50% Israelis did not want to see this coalition coming uh, uh, coming into power, they wanted Netanyahu to somehow find a way to 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 fix his uh, to build his bridges with with Gantz and bring Gantz into the coalition instead of Benjamin. Now you've got to ask yourself, what were those voters thinking? Did they really think that Netanyahu, who was promising to to to, to uh, during the election to form a right wing coalition and and really didn't have any other option anyway, what were they thinking when they voted for Netanyahu? So obviously. They were deluding themselves. But there is this chunk of Likud voters who do not like this coalition. They want Netanyahu to be in power. They are Likud voters. But this coalition really is not what, who they want to see running the country. And that's why, in the polls at least, they're defecting to against. So it sounds like kind of a catch-22 vicious cycle um, situation in which uh, the more that Netanyahu caters to these far-right parties, the more unpopular he becomes. And the more unpopular he becomes and the more the polls are against him, the more he sees how dependent he is on these parties and the more he caters to them. That's the price for Bibi of staying in power. Okay. um, Do you have any uh, shreds of uh, hope for us as we uh, close out the podcast? Do you see any signs of uh, Gantz, of somebody um, trying to to break this vicious cycle and move towards a different kind of government? Or you think uh, that this is where we're going to stay for a while? Well, right now, there doesn't seem to be uh, a way for Netanyahu to change his coalition Unless, and this is perhaps if you were looking for some kind of shred of hope, unless there is a, a, an event which allows B- B- Benny Gantz to, to, to join or even to support Netanyahu from the outside and causes Ben Gvir and Smotrich to leave, to leave the coalition. And I think the only possible event, and we don't know if it's going to happen, is a potential deal with the Saudis where if, we reach a, a, a serious point in that uh, in that negotiation. We know there are talks going on, but if we actually reach a point close to, to signing an agreement, there will be some component in that agreement where Israel has to give some kind of concessions to the Palestinians. The Saudis won't sign a deal with Israel without that. And that would potentially be what would force Smotrich and Benkvir to leave the coalition because they couldn't agree to such a thing. And that would give cover to Gantz to say, well, I said that I'm never going to sit with Netanyahu again, and this is, you know, he's, he doesn't, shouldn't be a prime minister and so on. But for this, it's so, it's so important for Israel to have peace with the Saudis, and this is a historic breakthrough for this. I will give Netanyahu the support he needs. That is, to me, the only uh, conceivable way in which we can see a change to this dynamic in the next few months. But that's, you know, we, we don't yet know yet 
if there is going to be a deal with the Saudis, and right now I can't predict if and when it's going to happen. And Shell, we have covered a lot of territory, a lot of topics, and I dare say you are probably one of the only people who could have taken us on such a comprehensive tour. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Alison. Well, uh, I'm sorry we don't have more pleasant stuff to chat about. <laughs> next time, next time, I'm sure. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to Anshel Pfeffer, my guest. Thanks to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm.